You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Thomas Steensma is a health psychologist, principal investigator, and part of the outpatient management team at the Center of Expertise on Gender Dysphoria at Amsterdam UMC in the Netherlands. Trained as a child and adolescent psychologist, his clinical work is focused on counseling and treatment of people of all ages with gender incongruence and differences of sex development. As principal investigator, his research lines are focused on psychosexual development, gender identity development, and treatment evaluation of youth with gender incongruence. Over the years, he's published over 50 peer-reviewed articles in international journals and several book chapters in close collaboration with prominent scientists in the field of gender and sexology. He's co-supervised several PhD and master's students. His recent scientific work is focused on understanding developments in our field, focusing on the change in observed sex ratios, and the influence of media attention on gender referrals and understanding the processes and factors involved in non-binary gender formation. He is currently part of the working group for the text revision of the DSM-5 chapter on gender dysphoria. In the development of the eighth version of the Standards of Care of WPATH, he is part of two working groups, the Assessment and Therapeutic Approaches of Non-Binary People and Assessment, Support, and Therapeutic Approaches of Children. Annalou de Vries is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and full staff member in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry working at the Amsterdam UMC. De Vries is leading the Child Psychiatry Department at the Centre of Expertise on Gender Dysphoria of the Amsterdam UMC. She is President-elect of the European Professional Association of Transgender Health, EPATH, and she is co-chair of the Adolescent Chapter of the Standards of Care Revision of WPATH. At present, her lines of research focus on the co-occurrence of autism and gender dysphoria, capacity for informed consent of transgender adolescents, long-term follow-up of transgender adolescents into middle adulthood, sexual development of transgender adolescents, and shared decision-making in transgender care, and finally, pathways in gender identity exploration and affirmation. The reason we feel this interview was so important to do is because the entire concept of blocking puberty really originated with these two Dutch researchers, along with Dr. Cohen Kednis, who we didn't speak to. We talked about patient zero, DeVries' first gender dysphoria patient, and the 22-year follow-up that was done with this person. And we get into some nitty-gritty details about the two studies on which all puberty blocker treatments are based— and we asked why they selected certain methods, we talked about eligibility criteria, and asked some questions about the 15 participants who didn't make it into the final study. We even touched on some cultural topics, like the influence of Jazz Jennings, social media, Dr. Littman's ROGD research, and we asked the researchers about detransition. This conversation really felt, at least to us, like we barely scratched the surface, we were frankly left with our minds swirling and a lot more questions than answers, which we're really eager to talk about in our post-series analysis. 
You'll also probably notice the vast differences between the perspectives that these researchers hold and the way Stella and myself tend to look at these issues. Nonetheless, this was a really interesting conversation, and we hope it was productive. So here's our discussion with Drs. Steensma and DeVries. Hi, Stella. How are you today? Hi, Sasha. I'm uh, very excited today. I think uh, we've been discussing gender now for o- over a year, and we've been agonizing over different points and, you know, different around the concepts. And today we have two very important people that are going to discuss to us the entire concept of the Dutch protocol, how puberty blockers first came into our, our kind of consciousness and what they now think. And so I want to give a very big welcome to, to uh, Thomas Steensma and Annalou de Vries. Hi there. Hi, Hi there. <laughs> could, could I maybe start by asking either of you, when did you first hear about the concept of puberty blockers? Because as far as I know, it was originally designed and created for children with precocious puberty. And that means children who might go into puberty at three or four or five inappropriately towards their body. And they get, they're given a, a puberty blockade that would stop their puberty. And then they could go into a natural, for, for want of a better word, a biological puberty when they're maybe nine or ten. So when did you hear about it? And when did you think, what about this for gender? You want to start, Thomas? Yeah. <laughs> I was a little bit before Thomas in, in, into the field. But I started working in 2003 at the Amsterdam University Medical Center. Uh, with Peggy Cohen Katniss and also Henriette de la Mare. And I think I was not aware before that time that puberty blockers were used for transgender kids. And we didn't even use the 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 term transgender eh? at that point of time. It were adolescents with gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder, I think, still at the time. So, um, and I was going to work in the hospital as a, as a liaison child psychiatrist. And um, as part of my, my application, I had to talk to Peggy Cohen Katniss, and I didn't even know she was working at the clinic. And, well, she told me, well, I, I need you for my work here with the transgender adolescents. And I need an open-minded psychiatrist. You don't need to have an opinion, but you need to be at least open-minded. And I think the first adolescent that walked in my office and was about to start puberty suppression, and she wanted to have a psychiatric consultation before the, the actual start, totally convinced me that this was so useful and could have such an important role. Um. Yeah, so that was the time I got into. Uh, I got, uh, I got to know about it. Am I right in thinking that the main objective was for cosmetic reasons that the boys would be the biological boys would be more likely to to be able to present as female in their lives? That this was the main objective, really, for puberty blockers. Jump in if I've got that wrong. Well, it's just interesting to to so Peggy told me once how she it was involved in the puberty suppression because see it's a little bit historical and it's it's not from first hand but so it's my second hand story from Peggy and she she told me that that like 
Peggy Cohen, Katniss, and Henriette Lamar were working in the same hospital, but they were working quite separately. So she was professor in pediatric and echonology, and Peggy was a uh, professor in uh, psychology. And then uh, they were, of course, in contact. But I, I think uh, Professor de Lamar had a, uh, an adolescent uh, in, their cons in her consultations who was really struggling with the development of the body. And she, well, at that consultation decided maybe it's better to uh, suppress this puberty for a period to to to, to give this uh, adolescent rest and 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 uh, uh, without a developing body. So and then she contacted Peggy uh, uh, with the question, uh, I, "I am suppressing puberty here. Uh, it, I think we we should do a very proper consultation about the gender incongruence." So that so I think that's the the really first case where it started, and and that basically answers your question a little bit. Uh, it, it is, of course, a, a very positive side effect that if you suppress puberty, that maybe uh, 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 the physical uh, appearance will be better later on. But the nice, uh, the, they, it, it initially started because of the dysphoria, the distress of a developing body to, to slow that down or to decrease that. And this first case, by the way, was a trans male, so it was a assigned female. But you're 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 right that when you think about it, that it might even have more uh, important effects for assigned males who who don't get their lowering of their voice and uh, um, the beard growth and the jaw, but, the, the the masculine yeah, features. Yeah, and 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 the tallness. Yeah, I've always thought that the. The puberty blockers are, are like for males, you can see what it stops. But for females, it's less of a, a, a less influencing decision because the, the, the girls can actually transition. I know Sasha has disagreed a little bit with me on this one, but I feel the girls can transition at 20 or at 30 and they get a very strong cosmetic outcome. If you follow yeah, but me. They're, but their puberty gives dysphoria also yeah, the menstruation the the growth of the breasts uh results in in really also can result in enormous dysphoria so uh, the prevention of of that is also for them important they they feel enormously relieved by uh, stopping menstruation stopping further growth of yeah also female uh, characteristics hmm. I'm wondering, um, in the context of this really distressing period for this young person, I, I know for you, Dr. Steensma, you mentioned um, being interested in counseling around uh, transgender youth. What are some, were there any counseling measures ever kind of attempted to help relieve the distress, um, perhaps in lieu of blocking puberty. I mean, of course, I know we're talking about the early days where we were just starting to see puberty blockers used, but have counseling methods ever been kind of attempted here? Uh, you mean in adolescents and children? Yeah, especially around that time when puberty becomes highly distressing. Well, I, I think um, historically there have been uh, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, the sexologists being involved uh, and, and having published about uh, counseling of, of young children and, and adolescents. Uh, uh, but, but then the, 
it was out of the question that there would be any medical intervention. So there, but there were no really positive outcomes. But it, it was were more case studies. So it it, it wasn't really uh, uh, empirical studies where it, it was really structured and it was measured. And I, I think the interesting thing about the field is that a um, uh, a, a lot of uh, arguments to help adolescents is that uh, we we have that information from adults. So when when they were counseling adults, you hear back that uh, uh, that that treatment relieved them in their gender incongruence, but they, they clearly reported that their adolescent years were very hard. So that was a reason to lower the 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 age. And, and, and of of medical interventions and to see whether that would be possible, and if the question is like counseling, yes, well, you, you have been talking with with other people in the field. There there were psychologists who who had a more psychological approach. But I think the 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 conviction of of Peggy Cohen Catanis was by that time that uh, psychotherapy had not been helpful in in resolving the gender dysphoria itself in ad, in adults. And I think she was convinced the same was true in in a certain group, a careful selected group of adolescents, especially once puberty started, that that psychotherapy would not be uh, of any effect in resolving the gender dysphoria itself. I'm very interested in hearing that carefully about the carefully selected group. Yeah. I, do, I do want <laughs> to hear, I just want to hear just one person because it sounds like, you know, there was always kind of patient zero. It sounds like there was very much patient zero for the puberty blockers scenario. I'm very interested. Is there any outcome on that person? And it sounds like, oh, there is. Is that the person who's the 22 year old? Okay, I'll just tell listeners because I'm talking in, in, in tongues at this point. There is a study by Peggy Cohn Ketnis in 2011 of uh, a person who transitioned female to male and it's a 22-year follow-up. And so you see how they got on. And I've studied that um, in, 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 you know, quite a degree. And I would say that it's it's quite a sad follow-up. That was how I kind of perceived it. I know the person is glad they transitioned, but they haven't managed to sustain any sort of long-term relationship and still feel ashamed about their genitals. What do you think? Yeah, I, 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 I heard that not so long ago from somebody who said that uh, it was not such a positive outcome. I think what I think that t- at the time that we wrote it and talked to the person, um, I think we, 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 we assess it as, as quite a good outcome. I mean, it was a psychological stable man with a with a job. Um, well, not regretting any of the decisions that he had made um, at a young age, um, and maybe it 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 sort of reflected that yes, uh, gender affirming treatment will not solve all your difficulties and all the challenges that transgender. Uh, individuals will face um, and that's maybe something uh, when you also look at adult longer term follow-up studies that we see that I mean the population is is vulnerable before affirming treatment but also vulnerable psychologically and socially after uh, affirming treatment and what exactly 
the reasons are thereof, um, I think is, is well, still being researched. And we also know that, yeah, tolerance, um, uh, the acceptance of, of diversity, gender diversity is enormous important in this. And yeah, what exactly the bodily dysphoria, what role that plays, we also don't know exactly, but that the bodily dysphoria had resolved to a large extent. That's an enormous important outcome, and that the um, and that that there were no regrets or or feelings that this shouldn't have been done. At I, such an I, early I agree age. with you. I'd love to yeah. kind of study the concept of regret because I often think very few people actually regret even your marriage that might have been, you know, quite awful. People tend to say, "I don't regret it." However, there was a huge amount of difficulties involved and there might have been other paths. And I think just the concept yeah. of regret in terms of medical transition isn't maybe the most uh, helpful framework when there, you, could, you could look at it in different frameworks. I'm not yeah. sure I wasn't Re- that person. Regret is an all or nothing yeah. concept. And I totally agree that, well, I think we've always looked at it and then regret was the portion of the population that came back to really medically retransition and that's always been of course a very small group and that doesn't mean that well people regret certain steps of the process or feel pity about uh, the loss of uh, certain it's, possibilities that that maybe cisgender people have it's it's interesting you said this person's you know had body dysphoria because you know, the, 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 certainly in the follow-up study, the 20-year 20 20 follow-up study, they had shame about their genitals. And then to bring in body dysphoria, and then you're getting into a really difficult kind of situation where which is body dysphoria and which is gender dysphoria when you're talking about shame about your genitals. And I think this is where myself and Sasha land, really. Uh, it's very hard to know that particular question. And, and Stella, what... what interest me is that when you summarize the findings from that study where you say okay there was a follow-up and my observation is that there's no relationship or there were struggles in life like and I, I, I sometimes wonder in the discussions in our field is like what do people ex- expect so if if you would think about a person with di- diabetes who's really struggling in life and you go to a doctor and you get treatment for your diabetes and we do a 22-year follow-up, do we still op- have the same arguments where you say, oh, the diabetes is much better, but there's no relationship and the person is still struggling in life on, on broader aspects of life? I, I, I You could also say... If your aim of a treatment is, or a counsel, or a a transition is to relieve your gender incongruence, then this is a very positive follow-up. The other thing is, will it relieve all your problems? Well, uh, possibly not, because medically there are a lot of side effects of the interventions you do it's it's not like uh, you make you you can create a, a biological genital and the other thing is like growing up and having a history of gender incongruence will of course have an effect on your future functioning so uh, it it is a bit i would say it's 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 a little bit binary to say 
it didn't help because it didn't relieve everything in life. I hear you. Good point. So, so uh, Dr. Steens, but you're kind of saying that it's not fair to assume that an individual with a history of gender incongruence could be kind of compared with a more typical patient population. You're saying that this person maybe started off on the back foot, so to speak, and we could expect that whether the dysphoria is improved or not, that this person may not have a kind of typical life trajectory. Is that kind of a fair reading of your analysis? Partly, but there's another thing. So why do we do follow-ups? Why do Analu and I design follow-ups? That's We design follow-ups not to show that uh, a treatment uh, is the right way to do for everyone and this is the only way. We do follow-ups to evaluate or counseling or, or treatment and to see whether there are certain aspects which we have to improve or where we have to focus on. And... Uh, and of course, if other people with, with well, from another few watch to those uh, uh, results, they may take other, make other conclusions. And, and so it, it is always important with studies to, to first ask yourself, what is the aim of the study? Is the aim of the study that we really want to prove that this is the best to do for everyone? And it will, I don't think you see in our studies, we never say, now we're going to, going to show that it will relieve everything for everybody. No, the aim is we want to evaluate it. Um, yeah, you're right. And you did. And I suppose in many ways, one could argue that people ran with that ball very fast in different countries. And you, you seem to have consistently have said that this was just an evaluation and assessment, effectively an experiment. Could we ask about um, the um, the 70 children you picked for the 2011 um, wh- how did you pick them? What was the kind of criteria and wh- were they particularly functioning very well? Because I got the impression that they were. Yeah, so this was the, um, they, were, they, were, they were not selected um, by, by being the best functioning. They were selected by being the first consecutively treated with puberty suppression. Um, so just in the order they came in. Um, from that very first yeah cohort where we where we saw actually at the beginning just maybe 10 15 20 adolescents a year it was were at the beginning it were it was really a small group um and who were uh, about or were at the, at at the point where they were about to start their uh hormones their affirming hormones and um then we did the follow up assessment so these were the first 70 who had started puberty suppression under the age of 16, uh, where the protocol was developed for. And can I just ask something that I noticed, and I want you to explain in case I have it wrong. I know that the children received the Utrecht gender dysphoria scale at the beginning of the treatment. And yeah. this seems to be a, a biologically sex differentiated scale. So girls get the girl scale and boys get the boys scale. And so in 2011, all the children presumably got, you know, whether they were girls or boys at the, at the beginning of treatment, they got that scale. And for example, a girl would get very high gender dysphoria um, assessment from the Utrecht gender dysphoria scale. And then she received treatment and she got puberty blockers, this hypothetical girl, and she got cross-sex hormones. 
And then I noticed in a footnote in the 2014 uh, study, the follow-up, that um, the these children who had undergone treatment then would receive this hypothetical girl would then receive the boy gender dysphoria scale. And so would inevitably, I would argue, score actually quite low on gender dysphoria because it was questions such as, are you happy being a boy? Do you like people perceiving you as a boy? Do your you know masculine um, presentation distress you? Yeah. Do you think that that feels like, uh, uh, why didn't you keep the one scale? It, it feels like it just totally messed with the results. The, 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 the scale wouldn't work anymore uh, after treatment, but at that, because at that point of time, so we did it in tw- 2011 because blockers are, we, we have always seen them as not really um, affirming treatment yet. It's just pausing development and bodily changes are only started when partially reversible. We always said hormones are started, sex hormones, and of course, surgeries. Um, so that's why we did that skill, the, the boy skill, at a, at a time then when, when they were identifying as male, living as male, and also had their physical characteristic as much as they wanted adapted. Uh, as male and the measure itself i mean there is definitely some some uh and and thomas can maybe say more about it there's definitely some criticism about it because it's very binary um um and it's maybe not the most ideal instrument to measure uh, gender dysphoria but it works pretty well in this in a sense that if you're uh, gender dysphoric extremely um, it, it will show uh, quite quite clearly. We also use the body image scale, by the way, which is a much larger scale, and also there you see that improvement. But again, that has a has a has a male and a and, and a female version. And at the time that we did the uh, 2014 study, we used the the version of the sex they were uh, living in. And that's a design that had been used in adult studies as well. So we 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 used the same in the in the adolescent samples. We used the same design. It it just feels for me that this uh, hypothetical girl she would thrill would be thrilled about presenting as a boy. So uh, of course her gender dysphoria would be massively reduced because it would be now saying how masculine you look, and so. It, it was completely the other end. Yeah, but but that I mean that's the meaning of the treatment, or not? Okay, yeah. If 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 there was a a more general scale about how how proud and how much you like your body, it seems like it would be more appropriate as a, a consistent question. If you follow me, it's not an ideal scale, but we had to do with it because it was there at that time. That so the. Even the argument that it was binary, of course it was binary because the whole world was binary. Like the world non-binary was non-existing, I would uh, almost say. so. Uh, and the uh, transgender uh, adolescents were also binary, eh? they yeah. were extremely binary. So, uh, but, and, but we, of course, have, have discussed this, like what would be better to, to, to use the same version at every measure, point of measurement 
or and after uh, after discussion we decided that the best option would to give the uh, uh, the version of the uh, 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 the social status where they were living in because gender incongruence per se is is like you struggle with the gender where you are living in or which is assigned to you and at, at that point it was correctly to use that one and it would have been much better to have one version that's it it's it, it, well that's the good news so we published the new one it's the huge gender dysphoria spectrum scale you can use it so this is a little bit advertisement you can google it <laughs> uh it's it, jennifer mcguire is first author and 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 i'm lost and, and so where, where um uh, where we designed a more like a broader scale it's gender spectrum it is filled out by it doesn't even matter which uh, assigned bird you have like it's you can just use it. So that's an improvement over time. But I, I do not agree that if you would have used the other scale, that it would have shown a different uh, uh, outcome. Uh, so just to kind of sh- share like some thoughts, I think for me, the, 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 the concerns I have about the scale is not that it isn't reflective enough of like non-binary identities, but more that there's a child who's by definition quite young if they're undergoing treatments at this stage. And in a way, the scale kind of uh, by switching over to the male scale, it almost gives the child a very unrealistic understanding of like what's actually happening, which is that this is still a female child undergoing some kind of uh, medical interventions but it's still a female with dysphoria attempting to treat the dysphoria. And by switching to the male scale, you're saying, well, now that you're a boy, are you happy? So I, I think for me, it's kind of a question of um, almost like the informed consent question or the capacity to comprehend that you're not actually. A... But we used, we switched but, but, to but the but other we, version we were, we were... far after treatment. So it's the third measurement point where it was used so you have the baseline measure then you have the the measurement point before the start of cross-sex hormones at that time and then you have we switch to the other version like post-treatment when all people are completely living in the other uh, in their desired gender role so it wasn't they were not in treatment anymore they were past treatment so then then it, it well I think that makes sense. They, they were, they were young adults. Eh? They were around the age of almost twenty-one. So it was seven years after the initial intake. It, it. I mean, that's why I think so. So, so few other clinics have been able to to repeat it. Nobody has been able to do to do such a long prospective study, and that's also why the two thousand and fourteen study. I mean. It was the it was the first that came out, but it's a it's a small group, and yes, we also lost some people to a follow up. But it's a clinical study, um, uh, where we did the best we could to find everyone from that first seventy in their young adult years, um, um, and yeah, we were we were able to. Sh- at least to sh- give some a pre- impression and show how they were doing in their and young do you know years. I noticed that you're studying uh, I think long term medium long term follow up do you know how I know it was a, a study of seventy in twenty eleven and then a study of 
55 of that 70 in 2014. How are they doing? Yeah. How is the first 15 who seem to have dropped out? Yeah, we are now perf- we are now performing a study where we where we are following yeah. up them again. Um, and now they are so they are now in, at the end of their 30s, and some of them we o- we are also doing the first study of Peggy Cohen Catanis, who published in the 90s a study of the first adolescents who were treated below the age of 18 or started treatment below the age of 18. They didn't use blockers, but they they got hormones uh, in adolescent years, and we've been able to follow up at almost a hundred of them who are at least nine years after their early 20s. So in their late 20s until their yeah, and are 40s many, even. Are many of them married and, and things? And we, and we still have to... Yeah, that's, that are the things we are going to, to uh, look at and uh, we have to analyze the data still. But this is, uh, has been quite an accomplishment and we have been working hard the last year to find them and uh, we're still finishing the last questionnaires and yeah I, I it will be an important study although again I think we also receive criticism but because we haven't been able to reach everyone so um, and that's the the problem of course all, always with those difficult studies that you you, you lose people in follow-up and yeah people can always say maybe you lose the ones who might not yeah. be so satisfied. What about the 15? You know the way you started at 70 in 2011 and, and then you went down to 55 for the next study? Yeah, so the, yeah. the, the 15, some of them were not just not yet there, were not, did not, were not in their early 20s yet. Uh, or um, at that point of time, we, we asked that they would have been, have had their surgery and some were still, Either on a waiting list for surgery or didn't didn't uh, fulfill the criteria for surgery yet because they were um, they were severely obese or had some other problems. Um, so not all of the seventy did uh, fulfill the the criteria that we had formulated. It, it's to funny be you bring up study. obesity. I'm sure you've followed the story of of Jazz Jennings and she's put on a lot of weight. And I, I just I note that like these these seventy children were originally chosen, and um, they 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 met the criteria at that point, and then they developed obesity or diabetes, I imagine, on treatment. Would that be right? Well, some of them might have had it when they started, but I mean, when they started, they were thirteen or fourteen or fifteen, so it's yeah, they might also have developed it. And it, it's the surgeon's criteria for for uh, providing safe surgery um, that they have that BMI uh, um, criterion. But, Stella, but there were also other... the, they were not oh, yeah. chosen. You're right. They came consecutively. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. really important. It's not a selective sample like where, where it is. Truly, like the consecutive referred adolescents in a clinic, and that's also good to mention. It is not that if you come to the in, to Amsterdam that you always start that everyone who gets in our in our uh, assessment uh, 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 period will start with puberty suppression or or treatment. It is still over the years. It's still the case that like one third of the population will not go on medical treatment for several reasons. 
And that may be that sometimes we say, well, the, 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 uh, 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 it's not the right time for you, but there's gender incongruence or people decide for themselves or other things are going on. And there are also people who say, well, my gender incongruence is there, but maybe a medical treatment is not the solution for this. So that's why do, we do such a, a extensive, I would say, psychological assessment. That's the, the primary reason to discuss and explore with the adolescent what would be, would, would they benefit from certain steps without steering the process. It's not that we say, well, you're the right for puberty suppression or not. Yeah, yeah. so I think the importantly, and it's also extensively described in, the, in both papers, that the Dutch protocol, the Dutch protocol is not providing medical affirming treatment. The Dutch protocol is, you see a kid, psychology is involved, you talk with the kid, you talk with the family, you see if, if, if affirming treatment is indicated and there are certain criteria for that. And the criteria haven't changed so much. So there should be persistent, long-lasting gender dysphoria. There should be no interfering psychosocial difficulties. There should be family or other social support. And there should be informed consent, so the, the the adolescent should be able to understand what are the pros, what are the cons of of, of treatment. Um, and then some experience of puberty, so ten or two. Um, and then, yeah, uh, you might be a candidate for for puberty suppression. And the same with um, uh, affirming hormones and surgeries later on. The 15, I'm and a bit then, stuck on those 15 that dropped out because some of them seemed to refuse to continue and some of them almost didn't want to continue. There was two different reasons and they seemed very similar. Maybe I'm wrong. No, no, no. Yeah. None of, as far as, far as yeah. we are aware of, none of those 70 chose okay. to stop altogether. They weren't eligible for to continue. I know some of them weren't eligible. So, so they 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 were oh, not yeah. there yet. Okay. They didn't participate okay. in the study. So, they, they, for some, they were not. They didn't uh, fulfill the criteria for the third measurement uh, moment, and others. Well, it it is still that the case that we had to ask: Do you want to fill out a, a, a couple of forms, and it will take one and a half hour? So, some of them refused to do that. They were just like, "No, it's enough." And- I can imagine, yeah. Were you going to say uh, something, Anna Lou? Um, yeah, no, so that's right. So the, the, the 15 that weren't able to, to be followed up in, in, the, in the second study, I mean, at, at, at far as... So they didn't detransition or regret. They were just not there yet. They were Are not, they being followed, that 15? Yeah, yeah. So I think in the, I think in the, in the, in the met- methods, I describe... What happened to the fifty? You do, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and I mean, it's I think it's it's really uh, described for each of them what what was the case. Uh, and one one of them died. I know he was getting cross sex yeah. surgery. Yeah, even that. So that's I think up until now the only person that we've lost to surgery. But that's always a risk of cause of surgery. And I mean, I, I remember we were devastated at the, at the time as a clinic. Yeah. The surgical risk um, of, of, of surgery. Yeah, it, it does feel very sad. You know, Jazz Jennings' issue around um, 
the fact that she's had a lot of operations because she didn't have the enough penile tissue to effectively uh, it sound to have a a uh, a more simple procedure as an adult it felt like the puberty blockers created the problem that she had as an adult to to transition did this occur yeah. with the, with these these children yeah we also published a paper about our surgical results of the young adolescents and um yeah from the early uh, times on uh, we have encountered or our surgeons have encountered the, the short penis length so so most of them got a got a got a colon fa- vagina where they used some colon tissue and um that's the ma- that's the technique they use in the netherlands for the for and that's been used then since since puberty blockers were used and since this group was evaluated all the trans females received that and um yeah well, and it's 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 also used in adults. Like there are also adults with a, a smaller a, a genital where there's not enough tissue. So then you have several options. I'm not a surgeon, but as far as I know, you have like you you take like tissue from somewhere else, or you try to find other techniques. And one of the techniques is uh, uh, using the colon, and and that that has been uh, described in several studies by. Uh, uh, Mark Bram Baumann, one of our plastic surgeons who uh, uh, did his PhD on this, where he, he showed that the colon vagina is a good option for people with uh, less, well, the penile tissue. Yeah, and, and I think Tim van der Grift, he evaluated specifically the surgical results of the adolescents for trans males and trans females, both. Um, and one of the things he's describing in his, in his discussion is also that uh, once once we start puberty suppression in in, in young trans females, a uh, part of the informed consent procedure should actually be that you inform them already about the the possible surgical consequences later on. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. If it's okay with you both, I'd like to kind of go back to something you were talking about earlier, Anna Lou, about like this patient zero that was so distressed about, um, you know, puberty and the changes in her, then her body. Um I, I'm aware that you both come from the psychological perspective. I'm wondering where in these early stages did the work of people like endocrinologists and surgeons come into play? Because we, we've been interviewing all of these other pioneers who were doing this work, you know, many decades ago. And there seems to be often this kind of confluence of like a psychologist and an endocrinologist or like a surgeon and a psychologist. So was there a similar pattern in your early days? Can you talk a little bit about the influence of the kind of medical community in how you conceptualize these gender distresses and how to treat them? Well, the nice thing about our clinic 
is that every, everything is like all the disciplines are in the same hospital and and from the beginning all disciplines were involved in in, in the counseling and the the point the, the, the points where we made decisions about uh, 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 treatment uh, uh, decisions so uh, uh, the endocrinologist was basically uh, involved from the beginning and uh, was also the one who uh, 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 was really there to offer information about what are the effects of hormones, but also about uh, what will be the effects later on on how your body will develop and and what can you expect and what can't you expect and and same for the sur surgeons who so because we work very multidisciplinary and although I'm a psychologist, I get a lot of knowledge and information from the other disciplines where I already discuss this and if it has to needs more detail we, f we easily refer them within our clinic and that's that's quite a difference from the rest of the world where it's it's like chain healthcare you first go to a psychologist and then you especially in the US then you try to find an endocrinologist you get a letter and you get referred but we are working very close with the endocrinologist yeah and not only do we work uh, under one roof with with all the different medical disciplines, but also all the ages. So um, uh, the child team is is knows the adult team, and and also the child specialists are collaborating with the uh, adult specialist. And for example, uh, Harriette de Lamara. Uh, knew Louis Goren, the the adult endocrinologist, very well, um, and the surgeons they were immediately also on on board. So um, I think that's that's got like a quite unique situation. And uh, yeah, Peggy Cohen Kettenis, she started her work in a different hospital, so uh, the adult and child service was first in Utrecht, but when she moved around the beginning of the century. To the Amsterdam clinic with her with her uh, child clinic. Uh, so since then, we've been able to collaborate very closely uh, with all these disciplines, and I think that's been yeah of of, of enormous uh, value. I'm wondering how often, if 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 at all, do you ever get kind of a patient come in or a young person come in where you know you have this whole team of people from different disciplines? Does anybody ever um, in kind of a a chorus of agreement say, you know, I don't think this is an issue about gender at all. I think this young person has other psychological issues, or I think this person is reacting to a difficulty with a peer group or a trauma. I mean, does that happen where the whole team is kind of unanimously saying, I don't think this is about gender? Well, we have a lot of uh, um, multidisciplinary meetings where we discuss the different uh, individuals coming into our clinic together. Um, psychology, psychiatry plays an important role in, in being sort of the case manager uh, usually and starting off. Um, and as as Thomas said, over the years, yeah, around a third or, or at least 25% uh, uh, of our cases will not start with uh, affirming medical treatment. And we've also said looked at, at, at our whole adolescent cohort, but also our complete adult cohort, 
if these these uh, if this percentage has changed over the years, and at least for the for the adolescents between 2000 and 2016, well, the percentage that did not start medical affirming treatment remained quite stable. Um, and and for all sort of reasons uh, and maybe psychological difficulties or uh, something else than gender incongruence was going on was one of those reasons. And I, I think it's your your question, such is interesting because the, the question you raise is really about well, I would say this is more about mental health. So and that's that's like we work multidisciplinary, but that doesn't mean that the surgeon raises his hand and says, well, I have my personal opinion. We all have like our own uh, discipline where we work from. And I, to, to, to put it a little bit in perspective, and, and I think it is important in, in discussing in this field, is that as a psychologist, I am not the one who decides whether someone has gender incongruence or not. Every person who comes into the clinic who reports I struggle with my gender is is does in my opinion struggle with gender incongruence. What my job is 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 not deciding whether it's gender incongruence. I try to understand, and I try to find out how this feeling developed and what the desires or what may help people. And in this exploration, you sometimes find other like triggers or other things that may be the trigger for certain feelings. So, for example, yes, it can be that in, in exploration, you sometimes with an adolescent find out that certain traumatic things happened or, or maybe a sexual abuse, which may have triggered certain feelings. And then you, you say it, it resulted in gender incongruence, but it fundamentally it it triggered it was triggered by something else. So maybe a medical intervention, as we provided here, is not the right solution at this point or at all. So that that's to put it a bit, a bit more in nuance. Like, so we are. Yeah. Although I must say that that when we looked at the data, the majority of the adolescents that got a diagnosis of gender incongruence, gender dysphoria, gender identity disorder also got medical treatment in the end. So it, the, the, the majority that did not follow, got, get medical affirming treatment did also not have a diagnosis. How, how do you think just in general, if you were to look at this as a, a kind of a 20-year almost experiment, how do you think it's going, the concept of puberty blockers for gender dysphoria? Well, I think studies and our clinical experience showed that... that uh, uh, we surely have seen that it it's beneficial for adolescents. We have seen uh, a lot of things have changed uh, uh, and and are evol evolving in our field. So the results are promising, promising, but all the results are like all evaluations we did are on the initial protocol. Things have changed how we do it. There is a variations in provided care, like from the Netherlands, but also worldwide. And there are fast emerging trends in our field. So uh, I, I would say for what we have done, it is, it is, but it, it is, it, it is work we have to go on and we have to stay close on it. It's not like okay, we invented it, just do it for everyone. You you have to really focus on on things that are happening. Um, yeah, um, when you say it, there are improvements, from what I could gather of the improvements in, the, in these studies, 
they weren't statistically significant improvements, let's say in depression or anxiety. There were there were very minor improvements that could be ascribed to getting a little bit older. I didn't see a, a kind of a definitive, there you go, it works. I saw that the gender... No, but still, yeah. the interesting thing is, you, you just asked to Annalou in, in a little sentence, and I wrote it down, where you asked, oh, were they married? Oh, yeah, I like, did. <laughs> it, it, and, and so that's... Uh, and and the, the thing is, people come in and they struggle with gender incongruence. A part of this population has quite much mental health issues. There are others in the population who are doing quite well, but they do have a, a, a gender incongruence very clearly. So uh, we re I think we really have to ask each other, what is your measurement of a positive outcome? And, and, and uh, if you say, if you treat gender incongruence, does it necessarily have to result in that people will marry later on or they will never be distressed in life knowing that they have a history and maybe being bullied and, and negatively and that's quite important to, to keep in mind. So uh, it, still it doesn't surprise me that if you do a follow-up that you see that there are still people struggling with life. Uh, it is not that that treatment is provided to make you happy overall and everything is resolved. But for the the people we see clinically and what we see from studies, we do see that their gender incongruence, for like the majority of people, and it's significant, was resolved. The gender incongruence. Well, it was also resolved because they went from a girl scale to a boy scale, so it, it was resolved as well because. The... Yeah, but now you're making it too easy because this is not no. the only study. Oh, no. like, <laughs> we, we've seen. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. No, it's 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 good to make it critical, but, 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 I... but I mean the, the the scale is not ideal. But if you ask the people, "Are you gender dysphoric?" I'm sure they're saying that's improved a lot. And I feel so much better in my body. I mean, that's the whole reason they go through this treatment. I mean, it's not nothing. I still, I still cannot imagine that you come to a clinic and you, 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 you get this medical treatment if you don't feel so much. It's so needed. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, and 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 so 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 the measure it might be. I mean, there might be a more ideal measure, but the measure actually measures what we want to measure. I think uh, there's no doubt about what it. What do you? And 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 I agree that that the question is if mental health is the best outcome measure. I mean, the best outcome measure, in my opinion, would be yeah, satisfaction with care. And what I know is that most of these people are really satisfied that they received this care. And uh, medical affirming care is massively important in, in, the, in, in the experience of transgender individuals. And not being able to access to affirming care uh, provides a lot of distress. Apart from, there's a lot of other distress also going on. Eh? We know the minority distress that LGBT population suffers from, and especially the T population, um, is also an important uh, uh, part of, of uh, the distress the transgender population experiences. And we have done other studies where we compared our sample with samples from other countries. And then one of the reasons we, we found that the 
uh, Dutch sample is doing better than the other countries, is that it seems that uh, the the acceptance and the tolerance in the Dutch in the Dutch society is quite high. So young Dutch adolescents, transgender adolescents, especially the ones that are able to come to our clinic and get the support of their parents, um, it seems that they are growing up quite in a in a quite support, supportive environment, also in school with peers. Um, so it's not just the puberty suppression. It's not just the medical affirming treatment. It's 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 a lot that's going on that uh, that that helps. And I think the mental health of uh, someone is normally quite well related with um, well if someone is functioning well. So in that way, it is uh, quite a good outcome measure. But it's definitely not. The I best. wanted to ask a question about something you also mentioned, Annalou. You talked about the kind of changes in the population, and of course, I've, I've, I'm aware that both of you have been thinking about this. I know it's something you're both interested in. And you, you also mentioned, you know, like when, when young people show up to the clinic, they are in such distress and they so desperately want these treatments. And I'm a therapist and I work with, you know, adolescents who tended to develop gender dysphoria around adolescence, around puberty. And something I have noticed is that with a kind of, um, it garnered interest in what transition is, what is the idea of being trans. I think young people, at least in my work, can go from having kind of nebulous, vague distresses about being a teen or a young person and then focus all of their attention on gender. So sometimes by the time they reach my office, they are obsessively focused on transition is going to help me. It is really palpable distress. And I don't think they're making it up or lying. Like I think they truly, truly feel dysphoric. And so I think for me, that raises a kind of like a philosophical question of, can you become gender dysphoric as a teenager, perhaps because of like a hyper focus on gender specifically after having no history of gender? Like, I'm just wondering if we could talk about this this more contemporary population, which seems quite different from the young people you studied in, in the early 2010s. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. I know that was a, a long introduction to it. Yeah. Yeah. In my regard, I, I'm still not sure if we're really seeing a, a, a such a different population. Um, it might be the case. What I see definitely is that our concepts about gender diversity have changed. So, um, well, definitely the 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 the, the binary uh, has changed. Um, with regard to the enormous distress they come in, uh, I must say, especially the young population that comes in in our clinic, some of them are totally not so distressed. Eh? They are supported from a young age on. They are they they trust that by the time puberty starts, they will be helped. Um, they're actually. Um, some of them are absolutely not so distressed, um, but you're also true. You're also right that yeah, especially in this somewhat older adolescent population, there might be uh, definitely more distress, and also maybe a, a focus on on well, gender affirming treatment um, is going to to solve my distress and is maybe going to solve all of my difficulties, and that's especially one of the reasons I think it's so important that uh, we do that careful 
assessment of that careful uh, um, and that's why I believe in in our model where we have the involvement of a of a mental health professional really looking together with the adolescent and the family is this is this the way you should go is this what's going to relieve your distress and and trying to to widen that that focus and uh, have a more more um, more more uh, from see it from different angles and especially see if there's also a good informed consent and good understanding of what treatment will bring but also will not bring um that's a that's a long long story uh, about about that in adolescent i mean part of adolescence is i think that you're starting to to search for um, who am I? Where do I belong to? Um, what are what what is my sexual orientation? And I think increasingly in 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 this adolescent population, uh, what is my gender identity? I think that's that's a much more uh, uh, much more part of has become much more part of adolescence. And that in that search, um, well, you 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 might be focused for for a while very much on that search. Um, yeah, it's very adolescent-like, and I think it's our role of adults, but also the role of parents, yeah, to help your adolescent come through adolescence in a way that, yeah, um, it's identity for forming, but in a way that 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 will fit them for the rest of their lives. And of course, the the fear is that they make decisions, yeah, again they regret, or because it's medical. Uh, that it will have lifelong consequences, but the whole idea that this period of life is important and that you uh, that you that you that you are identity surging, I think is 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 has been always there. Did you? I know we asked Rita Kerto Caltiala what she thought when she uh, read Lisa Littman's study on rapid onset gender dysphoria. Did you read it and had you any thoughts on it? It's hard not to read to have read it, of course, and there's it, there's been so much discussion about it, and um, yeah, yeah. I think I think again why I believe in our careful approach is that we 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 talk with the adolescents, we talk with their families, and the Leitman study. I mean, it's really it's it's a parent survey. And I know a lot of parents also in our clinic who have not been aware of their gender incongruent child uh, until the child started to talk about it. And a lot of the children tell me uh, I've been silent about it for a long time. Um, And yes, by the time they start talking about it, it comes as a surprise for the parents. Um, So, yeah, I'm not sure if that's if some if a phenomenon like that exists, I think there exists something like, um, yeah, that the experience of puberty, the experience of adolescence um, makes adolescents uh, think or, or is, is a period of time where you come by, uh, where you become aware of your gender incongruent feelings. Um, and then again, if then affirming treatment is something that's helpful for you or not, of that there are other ways to become happier, um, that's something that deserves uh, attention. Do you think it's different what's happening, let's say, in America 
versus what's happening in your clinic? Do you think there's... Uh, I know Laura Edwards-Leeper studied with you. And as far as I know, she brought the concept of, of puberty blockers over to the USA. Is that right or is that a sweeping generalisation? And are you... Are you <laughs> Are you are you happy with this? What, what's funny? Am I well, that would wouldn't be nice to say about Laura that she wasn't the one, but she she was definitely involved. I would say. Yeah, she she collaborated. She worked with Norman Speck. And Norman I think Norman Speck, Speck the deserves the the the, yeah. the credit. The crown. Uh, but she was definitely involved. I, I, Stella, I I I. I, I it, my opinion is not much different from Anna Loop, but I I do I I do sometimes frame it a little bit different in the sense of um, so what we have seen is that there's like so much changing in our field and society that if you read a, a study like Littman's study um, it's of course it's it's easy to have an opinion about the design and what they did but and on the other hand it is one of that uh, 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 signals or at least someone tries to explain things what are, are going on and whether we do, do exactly believe it, it's it, it, the only problem with it what I think is it is really framed as this is the reason why things are changing which I I think it's there's so much g more going on in the sense of we've seen an increase in referral it raises questions like are those adolescents coming in are do they show the same amounts of gender dysphoria is it the same development route how what 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 about the gender identity identity variations like a lot of things raise questions what we we have seen is that like measures of the GDS they don't didn't change over time but the inter interesting thing is what we have seen is that we suddenly see a very sharp increase in birth assigned girls coming in Compared to birth assigned and boys. autism, maybe do you see more autism than before? Or? That's that's interesting. So we we have looked at autism. That's not really changed, and uh, 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 like uh, uh, it's not that all those adolescents are non-binary suddenly. Uh, so and it's not like we we think it's all like a, a rapid or a sudden onset. So it's not all other developmental routes. What we Clinically, what we do have to do is really take everything into account and do it very carefully. So let that be a, 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 a very strong message. You really have to explore things and don't go fast. But um, uh, I, I would say that we, we can't give you a definite answer about whether things are true or not because we need so much more studies and understanding because it's also societal. I think a very interesting thing is when you see emancipation uh, uh, going on, uh, it is there's so much more media attention. Uh, so adolescents have a much greater opportunity to explore their identity over a transgender identity than they had the opportunity to do years before. Like the adolescents who came in around the year 2000, they said, I'm here because... There was one television program about the trans girl, and this suddenly opened my eyes. And uh, uh, and, and for, for the adolescents who are coming in nowadays, they have such other experience. Like, uh, I think every adolescent in the Netherlands knows what it is to be queer or non-binary non or, what, or whatever. And it's such a thing people discuss. 
It's the same with sexuality. In the earlier day, you, you just had three options. Now you have a lot of options and it's, yeah, you can just explore them. The other thing is, of course, you get a little bit afraid when medical interventions who will change your life dramatically get involved. I, I do understand there is concern, but the, the mechanism is completely unclear still. Yeah, and, and, and the way Liedman framed it, of course, uh, is like a warning. But you can also say it's emancipation or it's uh, increasing tolerance and it's, it's maybe the iceberg that's, that's uh, coming up uh, under, from under the surface is coming up where the increased visibility, the increased acceptance and also the increased availability also of medical treatments and the increased, um, um, uh, it's also, I mean, the attractiveness of treatment with puberty blockers as like a, a time of thinking, a time of exploration. Um, you can also see that as a, as a, as a positive. Well, that, that was and the yes, concept. Social, yeah. social media might play a role, but it also gives the adolescents to, uh, the, the possibility to to come into contact with others that experience the same and um, uh, identify with them. So um, yeah, it's 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 the way it's framed. I think in the in the Liebman study, it's it's framed like like a warning. Um, uh, you can also frame it as yes, it it makes a lot of lot more adolescents aware that maybe this is something that fits me. Um, and in the end, I think the decisions about the medical steps uh, are still for us as a team as difficult as they were like 10 or, or 20 years ago. Um, and uh, we're still um, convinced that, yeah, just a careful process is needed to make such decisions. When I think about this particular aspect, you know, I think about, for example, some of the challenges that people have in psychiatry in general, given how subjective a lot of these experiences are. And I've tracked, for example, you know, uh, the repressed memory syndrome and then uh, what's now considered dissociative identity disorder. And you see these kind of, if you look at the history, these cycles where like this diagnosis comes into popular consciousness, lots of people experience it, and then it kind of fades away and it comes and goes and comes and goes. And I think, I mean, from that perspective, I can understand why there might be a warning bell because the, the treatments involved for something like gender dysphoria do have a lot of irreversible elements to them. And so if there is a chance that there's a socially mediated aspect of this, especially in the adolescent girls, um, I feel for me that that gives us really important reason to kind of pause and, and wonder about the development of symptoms. Yeah, I, I, in a way, I agree. On the other hand, what you're describing, it's it. Those are trends we've observed in hindsight. Like it's, it's quite being um, difficult to being in the middle of it, and and um, uh, uh, what I tried to say before is that because there are so many elements and and things involved like um and you can have several arguments why you should be very careful but there are also very in my my view arguments why you can go on how you were doing but at least if you do it careful like 
if your theory would be that uh, we nowadays see a lot more adolescent birth assigned girls coming in uh, and uh, that would result in less referrals of older birth assigned females then it may just be a shift where people just find out earlier and well when I look to our data in our clinic what I do see is that nowadays a lot of young people come in but the the, the number of older people like over 30 over 40 is really decreasing so in that sense from that theory you would you could say well it's a, a shift in 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 in, uh, in exploration and then it's a very positive thing that people uh, are able to come in earlier the other thing with sex ratios is interesting like historically we in adults we always have seen like three times more birth assigned males coming in and now there's a shift. Well, it, it's, it, it could also uh, uh, be like a catch-up where, where in the early days we didn't saw a lot of birth assigned females coming in. And nowadays we do see them. So it's, uh, and, and those are such a, 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 a couple of examples that it depends on which theory you want to, uh, you, you work with. And I, I think... In Amsterdam, we are um, uh, very open to all the signals we get from the field. So I, I also take a Littmann study very serious in the sense that in my psychological assessment, I do discuss with people. So it was there suddenly or there was no history. Let's find out how that worked for you. But and at the same time, when we look to our data and when we talk in, uh, with our other clinicians, it's not that we suddenly see uh, the cases, how they were described like stereotypically in the Littman studies. Not that in the Netherlands, when they go to a summer camp, that they suddenly all come to the Amsterdam clinic. So it's it, you have, it, it, we, we do take it very seriously. But it's it's not that it's it's a warning signal where we have to pause and say, well, this is the things are really changing now. And historically, I think gender we know we know that transsexualism, as it was called, or gender diversity, has always been there. And there are studies from the uh, the, the the question: Does your behavior, does your child behave as the opposite sex, and does your ch child want to be the opposite sex? Have been asked to parents in in a questionnaire since the 70s and 80s and actually those percentages don't seem to change so much over the years that doesn't mean that 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 are, that are not per se gender dysphoric children or children that come for gender medical gender affirming treatment but but the 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 phenomenon of gender diversity has always been there and it might be that yes the availability of medical affirming treatment the acceptance, the tolerance uh, has changed. So social factors has, has changed. Uh, maybe the, the pathways um, uh, individuals follow um, when experiencing these feelings. Um, and, and definitely social factors. Uh, so it's in, that's in psychiatry, I think, um, in, in almost all the conditions that are out there. And then we have the discussion, is this a psychiatric or mental uh, phenomenon or, or is it something else? But yeah, that 
psychological, social, and biological factors or all play a role. Um, that's that's pr probably not different in uh, in the presentation of transgender uh, experiences. Uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I I know we shouldn't keep your time, <laughs> and I, I'm just desperate to ask you this question. Um, I, I'm in Genspect and we're running a, a, a webinar. I'd be delighted to send you free invitations if you wanted to come um, on detransitioners. And I know Lisa Lippman did do a study on, she released a study on detransition. And I wonder, are you studying detransition? Have you noticed the issue around loss to follow up in her study that the, the people who she studied did not go back to the clinic? You know what I mean? The majority of them. So there's a real issue around loss to follow up within mm -hmm. all these studies. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned about that. And I'm also concerned about the detransition experience. Because in my work with detransition, I'm no doubt yours, they don't want to go back to where they transition. They don't want to go back to that clinic. That feels, that, that feels you know, very distressing. Yeah. Well, I would say if it's about detransitioning, we we definitely and regret in like if, if people and also talk about this in, in that sense, we truly don't have enough information to really to even say that people don't want to come back to our clinic because it's it's a group that we don't have a lot experience with. And and I in, in our clinic we do see people coming coming back and there and but there were i also hear clinically stories from people who say it is very hard to come back and i i really struggle with this and and uh, it, it really took time to take that step to come back not because really of the clinic but it's also like because of the process and to to so uh, and, and, and what we are doing now in the Amsterdam clinic is that we are identifying the people who are in a way doing a detransition or another uh, pathway of transition. And we try to identify what their motivation is uh, of doing that. And then there is uh, there are um, uh, 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 there's an interesting article uh, which made that that distinction between uh, between you have like a core regret or a core detransition and and it's it's uh, other effects and if you talk about core then you could say well it was truly no gender incongruence uh, in the beginning and and it was really a wrong decision or maybe there were other reasons why people want to stop with their hormones or detransition. So that's what we try to identify is like, what are the uh, motivations of people? Um, uh, and I, I do think that it's very difficult to, to, uh, 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 to identify these people because it, it is quite a process. It's not a, a certain a thing that it's there. It's not static. It's, it's again, it's very developmental finding out you're on the wrong pathway and 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 i think even about detransition or regret i think we used to call to, to to talk only about regret and then the all or nothing and and the regret would be to to change back um detransition is already uh another another term that's being used and there might be detransition with and without regret I think there are also people who say, "Well, I transitioned and I detransitioned, and I happy and I and I'm happy that it, that I did it." I mean, there are case case descriptions of such experience, and if we 
even think about, and that's really difficult. I think we used to think as as gender incongruence is something uh, permanent and and persistent and therefore for always. But when we are now talking about fluidity and maybe there are parts in your life when you're you're gender dysphoric and maybe that that's that's something that changes. I mean that's of course worrisome since some of the medical steps are not so easy to to uh, um, to reverse. Um, but the concept that it's changing over time or that in that it might be fluid is of course when we think about uh, also when when we when sexual orientation and we started to talk about uh, um, homosexuality. We thought it was fixed, but now we also know that it's for certain people it's changing uh, during their lives. Um, so maybe something like that is also hap- happening with gender diversity, and it makes it should make us well careful, more careful. Um, we should discuss these things also with adolescents. Uh, they should be aware of these concepts. And that's also why I think I really, I mean, the older an adolescent is when it's when he or she's making the decisions, the, the more I like it. <laughs> because, I mean, when you grow, you mature, um, you, you, you get a better view of what's out there. Um, and that's what I like in my adole- transgender adolescents, that they have the, as wide a scope as possible. Um and then with regard to the, the transitioners, um, of course, it might be true that they don't come to our clinic, um, but we are still a, quite a small study uh, country, and we are still serving most of the uh, gender incongruent population, although there are other clinics as well. And I have the feeling that if it was really like ver- a very large group of young people that would did the transition, we should we would know more about it uh i think colleagues of mine working at other mental health institutions uh would come to me um general practitioners uh but maybe i'm wrong but i have the feeling that it was that if it were really large amounts of de- young detransitioners um we we should we we would know more about it well and the thing is I, I do think that there are cultural differences. Like, uh, I think the situation in, in North America is completely different in, in how you have access to care and what people uh, uh, and health insurance and everything. So it's it's hard to compare. I, I can imagine that that if you if if like in the Netherlands, it's still and, and people have have their opinion about it. But if you come to a clinic, we do talk with you before we do medical interventions. Well, if you do it in another way, where you start with medical interventions and maybe talk afterwards, it may have an effect on 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 whether it was a good decision. The conference might be interesting then for you to check out. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Do do, do you think they're operating the same safe and and slow? Uh, approach in America, in North America, as they are in in Amsterdam? Well, we've both been talking to Laura, I think, and other colleagues in the States, and I think they, they warn that it's not mm-hmm. happening everywhere, that there's just not that availability of mental health uh, 
people everywhere and there's not that close collaboration between um, the medical uh, disciplines and the mental disciplines uh, everywhere. But I think I've I've not seen, again, a proper study uh, on what sort of services are provided in in the United States. So this is just right. storytelling. Well, we're we're very grateful. We, we for better your time. liberate you. <laughs> um, it's been. <laughs> We've held you hostage. Yes, I know. I think we could have held you hostage for several more hours, but we're really we're really grateful that you were um, on and to kind of discuss all of this with us. Yes, thank you very much. I was so keen to hear so many things, and you answered so many questions with real honesty and you know generosity and I really appreciate it. Well and the nice thing is we, we do talk with a lot of journalists and people from media and but you are you two are very good informed. <laughs> so that's that's a nice discussion. It's, it was even a little bit tough uh, sometimes. So <laughs> yeah. I have to go to bed early tonight. We did well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender a wider lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.